Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Paul Bigler is a journalist, academic and former specialist physician in emergency medicine. His health and science writing has been published in The Age, The Sydney Morning Herald, Good Weekend and The Australian Financial Review. He is the author of The Ethical Treatment of Depression, which won the Australian Museum's Eureka Prize for Research in Ethics. Today, I'm joined by Paul Bigler to talk about his new book, Why Does It Still Hurt? How the Power of Knowledge Can Overcome Chronic Pain. Paul, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you very much indeed, Greg. Why Does It Still Hurt? begins with an encounter with Dr. Cal Freed and a certain card trick. What is that card trick? How does it work? Yeah, I was in Cal Freed's office at the end of 2019 as a sports and exercise physician, and I had knee pain from a, a torn cartilage in, in my knee. And the pain had been going on for about five months now. And he went in there and, you know, we had a brief chat. I'd met him earlier. I met him about 10 years before with a previous knee injury. And, you know, without further ado, he handed me um, three boxes of cards. One was full and two were empty. And he said, just, just hold on to those for a minute. I said, yeah, sure. I was a bit kind of confused. What, what was he doing? And then he said, well, give them back to me. And, and then he just handed me one of the box of cards, uh, just the full one. And he said, do you notice anything? And I said, yeah, that's really weird. That actually feels heavier than all three of the boxes together, which it really couldn't be because I'd given back the two empty boxes. I now only had the one full one, not the one full and the two empty. And I said, what's, what's going on, Cal? And he said, well, it's a really nice example of how the brain is responsible for what you feel, but it doesn't get it right all the time. One box of cards, for some reason, felt heavier than three. And the explanation was that I was feeling that single full box across a smaller area of my hand. Uh, so relatively, it actually felt heavier than all three boxes uh, across a bigger area of my hand. And he used this to introduce the idea of central sensitization, maladaptive neuroplasticity, because we were going to talk about the potential causes of my persistent pain in, in my knee and how sometimes we can make a similar mistake when we're looking at the causes of our pain and why the pain is persisting and why it still hurts, the title of my book, um, in a similar way to how we can make a mistake with ascertaining the weight of the card boxes. We generally interpret pain as a danger signal, but uh, in Why Does It Still Hurt? You explore the idea that pain can not always be trusted and is in fact two-faced. Who or what are, as you describe it, the two faces of pain? Well, the first face of, of pain uh, is a really, really important and very useful one. If you've got an acute short-term injury, you know, you cut in your arm or you break a bone, um, the pain is there to tell you that you need to not move, move on it. Uh, you need to, to get assistance. You need to do something to resolve this problem. And for example, in a broken bone, it's very clear what you need to do. You need to ascertain the nature of the underlying injury. So pain you know, most of the time it's a really useful indicator that there's damage to tissue in the body and loss of function, pain, 
swelling, uh, redness, all of those things conspire to get you to rest the part and do something to try and heal it. With persistent or chronic pain, that is pain that lasts longer than about 10 weeks, the connection between our sensation of pain coming from an anatomical part and tissue damage in that part becomes much weaker. And one of the reasons for this is the process called central sensitization. What happens actually immediately after you get an injury is that the sensory nerves to the area, let's say you've injured your knee, the sensory nerves to the knee amp up, start to amplify the, the pain sensations coming from that area. That's just part of our adaptive evolutionary response to pain. It's getting us to say, hey, there's something wrong here. Let's stop. Let's do something about this. And it's called central sensitization. It's caused by changes in the spinal cord and changes uh, later on in the brain. Now, after about 10 weeks, 12 weeks, three months or so, if you've still got central sensitization, which many, in fact, most people with chronic pain do have a component of that, What's happening is often the injury is healed. The problem in your knee or your back may well have healed by now, but because those sensitized sensory nerves, sensitized areas in the spinal cord where the sensory nerves connect, uh, brain areas that are responsible for picking up sensations, including pain, changes in all of those areas can conspire to cause you to still feel pain. It's still 100% real, it still hurts but it is no longer indicative of damage uh, in the area where you feel the pain coming from. And this is something in the book that I refer to as the pain mistake. You're not making a mistake that it hurts. It, it hurts. It's a, the pain's 100% real. But the mistake can sometimes be that the cause of the pain is ongoing injury in the area that hurts. And it's something that people have a lot of trouble accepting. My knee hurts. Therefore, there must be a problem in the knee. But in fact, after three months or so, oftentimes the injury is healed and the pain is being generated by the sensory nerves and changes in the brain. So what that can mean for some people is that getting treatments that are directed towards the body part, as in having injections into the knee or drugs directed at the knee or even surgery directed at the knee, may not be appropriate, may be more appropriate to have your treatment interventions directed at the sensory nervous system and the brain. That, of course, leads us to reflect on the statement that pain is not an accurate measure of tissue damage. Yeah, that, that's correct. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons why this is the, is the case is that we know that ultimately the brain makes pain. And what you find in people with persistent pain is that there is activation in brain areas on, on functional brain imaging, brain scans that go way beyond just the sensory cortex, uh, that part of the brain that tends to pick up all of the sensations we feel, whether it be pressure on your arm um, or whether it be pain. You're getting activity in the frontal cortex, which processes uh, our thoughts our, and our beliefs about things, our expectations. You're getting pain in the emotional system, uh, the amygdala, the hippocampus, areas of the brain that process fear and anxiety. And what that tells you, and this is the idea of the neuromatrix theory of pain, what this tells you is that our beliefs, our feelings can actually contribute to the inferences that our brain makes about whether we should feel pain in, in relation to a sensation. So if we go back to a knee sensation, 
that we interpret as pain, we feel as pain, it's real. There's a strong argument that actually that is an inference that the brain is making in combination with not just the sensations coming from the knee, but in combination with our beliefs about what's going on and um, our feelings about that. I mean, there's an example, it's actually not in the book, but there's a very famous example in pain science of a construction worker uh, who went to hospital after getting a, a large nail uh, hammered through his boot at a construction site. And he was in absolute agony and he needed strong painkillers uh, intravenously to get rid of that pain. And when they took his boot off, the nail had actually gone between two of the toes and there was no damage whatsoever. Now, that's an extreme example. All of those uh, beliefs, those expectations, the associated negative feelings can contribute to the brain making an inference about whether a sensation from that injured part should be interpreted as pain or not. And so the result can be an injury may well have substantially healed and sensations that have been generated from pressure or movement are being interpreted by the brain as pain. I had the same thing myself with my with, with an earlier knee injury where when I injured a knee riding a bicycle, where after many, many months, the pain was still there. I had something called uh, patellofemoral pain syndrome. I would get pain from a breeze blowing on my knee. It would hurt. Uh, and people can get pain in a, pain, in a painful area from central sensitization from having a, a paintbrush stroked on their knee. So with, with these uh, sensitization, with uh, feelings and, and thoughts and expectations, altering inferences about pain, you can amplify painful signals, but you can also generate pain, and it really does hurt, it is real pain, you can generate pain from stimuli that would not normally hurt. This book introduces the idea that pain is closely related to neuroplasticity, but also this idea that there is such a thing as maladaptive neuroplasticity. How does maladaptive neuroplasticity work against our uh, sensation and our desire to cure our pain or be pain-free? Neuroplasticity in central sensitization starts off right at the beginning of, of, of an injury. As I mentioned, you know, you, you're getting changes in sensory nerves in an area of the spinal cord called the dorsal horn, which is where the sensory nerves have a kind of interchange and then send up the spinal cord to the brain where, where the pain is registered. You're getting changes in the synapses, that is a connection between the nerves and that, that sensory pathway that make that pathway more sensitive to painful stimuli and even non-painful stimuli. So that's something that happens in the short term, very acutely, immediately after after an injury. And as I mentioned earlier, that's something that is quite adaptive. It's quite useful. It's basically saying, you've had a serious injury. Let's make that pain feel a little bit worse to get you to do something about it. And that's a kind of healthy thing from an evolutionary point of view. Those neuroplastic changes become maladaptive if they persist as a kind of memory, if you like. Um, for more than 10 or 12 weeks in the setting of persistent or chronic pain. Because in those situations, the neuroplastic changes reflect sensitive ner nerve pathways that cause you to feel pain, as we mentioned earlier, even when uh, the tissue damage is very likely to have resolved, it's healed. And, you know, it's just a, a quirk of the body that this happens. And if the body had an ethos, it would be better safe than sorry. And that's why in some people, 
those neuroplastic changes err on the side of being too much rather than too little and contribute to this persistent pain from persisting central sensitization. So why does it still hurt? It's actually peppered with lots of case studies and research, very informative. I want to talk about one in particular. It's one of the early ones, and it, uh, it relates to the case of Lauren, a competitor in triathlon and Ironman events, a woman in peak condition. Whereas her injury had recovered, her pain hadn't stopped. What changed for Lauren in the process of exploring her condition? Lauren's case is a fascinating one, and she's always been really driven to succeed. Uh, a book talks about, uh, you know, searching for parental approval as a child. But, you know, as an adult, she was always trying to do her best. Uh, you know, she became a police prosecutor. She she took up um, triathlons and then the, the, the long-distance form uh, Ironman. She was really, you know, almost obsessed with competing and, and, and doing really well. And she had a terrible uh, accident. Uh, she was hit by a truck while she was riding a bike training for the Melbourne Ironman. And, you know, over some years, uh, the injuries from, from that uh, crash uh, and other injuries, a couple of other injuries that, that probably resulted from uh, her excessive training, uh, all caused her to develop persistent pain uh, to the point where she developed post-traumatic stress disorder and, you know, very sadly it was suicidal. I mean, she was really in a very bad way. And I think that the message from, from at least how she developed her pain is it's really important to remember that for Lauren, pain was a huge threat because she was so heavily invested in the results of, of the Ironman and succeeding at work and so on. Even the presence of a, of a minor pain, I think you could argue, seen as, as very, very threatening by Lauren. And we know that uh, from the work of, of a number of researchers that when a person senses pain as a threat, they respond to that pain with negative emotions, with fear, sadness, sometimes depression. And all of those emotional responses are part of a filter of mindset that augments the threat posed by that pain. And when the brain sees a sensation coming from a body part as threatening. It is more likely to turn it into pain. And this is part of this kind of inference process, this neuromatrix process where all these multiple parts of the brain are, are generating pain. Now, Lauren was really interesting because she hadn't heard of central sensitization until she discovered a podcast. And this was, I think, a couple of years after she'd had her initial crash. It was just hearing those words, central sensitization, and an understanding that maybe the pain was not indicative of ongoing damage. That was really the key for her because she said she could stop looking for treatments that were directed at the anatomical part. I mean, she had had a, a pain in her knee as part of this and had an exploratory surgery there, which found nothing. She could stop looking for those kinds of treatments and start looking at addressing things like central sensitization, which were actually the primary cause of her persistent pain. The question is, can thinking really change your nervous system? And that is well expressed in the case of Carl. Carl is a fairly familiar story. A back injury led to surgery, followed by a merry-go-round of treatments. But what Carl found to be the most effective in his treatment was pacing. What is pacing? How does it affect our perception of pain and its management? 
Yeah, so pacing is really a graded exposure to exercise. What that means is uh, doing exercise uh, at starting off at a very, very low rate and gradually increasing it. Uh, there, there's something in chronic pain called fear avoidance. And so one of the things that happens when people get an initial injury is they become fearful of doing a movement that's going to bring on the pain. And this is something that's been very well shown in animal studies way back to Skinner's work in, in the 1930s. Uh, you give a, a rodent an electric shock in the foot, which doesn't sound very nice, but that's that's how things uh, have been done in animal research. Uh, those those rodents become fearful of an audible tone that is paired with the foot shock. And you can just play that tone by itself and they will freeze. They'll, they'll, they'll display this fear behaviour. Uh, and a similar thing happens to people. Carl had a back injury and you can become very fearful of doing any kind of movement that could exacerbate that. So people stop moving. Uh, it makes perfect sense. You know, you don't want to get the pain again and the pain exists to stop you moving. So, of course, you're not going to move. But in persistent pain, that's actually hampering people getting better. And so Carl uh, enrolled in, in a pain management course at St Vincent's Hospital here in Melbourne. And one of the things that they did in that course was uh, pacing. So they slowly introduced him to movements that previously caused pain. Well, sometimes not movements, so sitting down. Uh, he couldn't sit for more than a few minutes and uh, walking and climbing stairs and, and various other movements supervised by the health professionals there. And what they would do is they'd actually arm um, Carl with a, a little timer, a little alarm clock that was pinned to his clothing, and um, they'd start him off just doing 30 seconds or a minute of a certain movement, and then the next day they'd gradually increase that with the time being limited by the, the drill sergeant of the alarm clock going off. And what Carl found was that gradually over a number of uh, weeks to months, he went from being able to walk only 100 metres or so to being able to walk many kilometres. And this gradual re reintroduction of, of movement is reassuring people. It's a kind of experiential reinforcement of the idea that movement doesn't cause pain if it's gradually introduced and therefore isn't a threat. It's a, an experiential reinforcement that, the part that has been causing pain that has been injured in Carl's case, it was the back, uh, is actually safe. It's safe to move on it. And as soon as you reinforce the idea that the area is now safe, it's not in danger because it's damaged, that can tone down the threat signal that uh, causes the brain to be more likely to make pain from sensations coming from that area. And back to your original question, you know, can, can thinking change the nervous system well, in Carl's case, the thinking process was, well, I understand now that I need to start moving. That was the thought process that led to the movement and the movement ultimately led to uh, at least partial reversing of some of those neuroplastic changes that were perpetuating the pain, including central sensitization uh, and these emotional brain changes that uh, keep tagging those sensations coming from Carl's back as, as a threat. Now, one of the real takeaways from this book is the importance of exercise. It's an interesting quote there. Exercise can be anti-inflammatory. I can't stress how important exercise is. And obviously, we talked about fear avoidance. People don't want to move. Uh, you know, if you've had a structural dangerous problem ruled out and you know that it's safe for you to move, and this has been done under the care of an appropriate health professional, 
then movement is just so important uh, in persistent pain, uh, starting low and slow. In my own case, I began the process of rehabilitation by riding a stationary bike in my garage just for 30 seconds and then waiting two days and the pain didn't come back. And then I rode 60 seconds, so really, really slowly. How does it work? Uh, we know that even low intensity exercise can uh, re release uh, our bodies in a, in a painkillers, the endorphins. But you also mentioned this anti-inflammatory effect and the work of Kathleen Sluka, which I cover in the book, is just fascinating. Her work is in mice, but it's a, a pretty good model for, for humans. And basically what she found was she, she would give mice pain by giving them an injection in, in the calf of slightly acidic salt water. Uh, she did this for years and, and would investigate the, the cause of pain. And she has a really interesting episode where she'd actually been getting the mice to, to run on a running wheel for a few days. And, and then she gave them the injection and they didn't get any pain. The research assistant thought they'd made a mistake and they did it again. These mice, she couldn't give them pain with this injection that had always caused pain. And what she discovered through a series of experiments was that running on the running wheel was preventing them from getting persistent pain compared to sedentary mice. And what had happened was that a cell, an immune cell that sits in, in their muscles in their calf and all of the skeletal muscles in, in our bodies too, called a macrophage, in sedentary mice, those macrophages, when, when the mice exercise, they spit out inflammatory proteins, which were causing pain in, the, in these sedentary mice. But for the mice that chronically exercised over and over on, on their treadmills, those little macrophages had undergone a personality switch where now when the mice exercised, they were spitting out anti-inflammatory proteins or cytokines. And that's why she couldn't induce the pain syndrome in these mice because these anti-inflammatory proteins were stopping it. And so in people who exercise in the setting of chronic pain, one of the reasons that it's very helpful for reducing pain is probably this anti-inflammatory effect combined with the release of, of endorphins. But also, as we mentioned earlier, it's really important that they're getting this experiential reinforcement that it's safe to move and that reduces the fear. But it's also extinguishing that associative learning. So I always associated riding the bike, turning the pedals over with pain in my knee. And I, I really had to unlearn that, which is something that happened through this gradual exposure, this graded exposure to exercise. I, I learnt that I could turn my, my legs over on the bike and not get pain. And that was really extinguishing this condition response. So exercise is fascinating because it works in, in so many different, different ways. There's another thing that you raise, which is about collagen and the idea that exercise assists in the laying down of collagen. What's the role of collagen in, in repair and pain management? Yes, that's a really, really good question. Uh, one of the things, we go back to Kathleen Sluka's research, and one of the things I asked her, I said, well, look, why, why would we, we have this system? Why would we have evolved to have a system where you got less pain with exercise in the setting of, of a previous injury? Isn't that bad for you, moving on an injured part? And look, it is if it's a really catastrophically injured part, but if it was a more minor injury, it's probably the case, well, we know it's the case that when you move on an injured part, 
that's going to alter the way the collagen remodels in terms of repairing the injury. And, you know, if you move in a way that's not going to aggravate the injury, it's very likely that collagen remodeling will conspire to make the final form of the repaired part the most functionally adaptive and functionally useful. You know, some weight bearing at some point on a, on a broken limb after the initial uh, mobilization and healing phase is going to alter the way that the collagen aligns as part of that healing process and probably make it more functional. And there's been some very interesting research on osteoarthritis of the knee. It's found basically that people who are sedentary have got an incidence, I think, of uh, around about 13% uh, osteoarthritis of the knee, something that went down a little bit in elite runners to something like 10%. But then when you get people who are just recreational runners, they had the lowest incidence of all. I think it was about 3% in this big meta-analysis that was done. Christian Barton for, for this book, he's an associate professor at La Trobe University, an expert physiotherapist and an expert in the osteoarthritis of the knee. And really the explanation here is that um, if you cyclically load the, the knee joint, you know, someone who hasn't got a ca catastrophic injury, obviously, but if you cyclically load it over and over, to some extent, this is a, a necessary force being put through the knee that stimulates the uh, production of, of proteoglycans, uh, which are essential to the formation of the articular cart cartilage in the knee. But you've got to actually load the joint. So people who were sedentary um, weren't getting this proteoglycan response because they weren't doing enough exercise. And people who were elite athletes were probably over loading that joint. And that wasn't good for the proteoglycan production either. So there's a kind of sweet spot whereby if you exercise in the setting of even sometimes severe osteoarthritis, again, you know, advise that this happens under the care of an appropriate health professional, but look, Christian's had, had people at his clinic who have got grade four osteoarthritis, bone on bone on the x-ray, and they can run on that with no pain. So we know that uh, exercise and osteoarthritis, they're not mutually exclusive. Uh, they can coexist and, and there's a whole bunch uh, of reasons you know, why that is the case, many of which we've alluded to earlier. Use it or lose it, but I guess don't use it too much. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, really, it's really about being sensible. And look, I don't talk about the envelope of function in the book, but it was a nice, it's, it's a nice idea that all of our body parts have got an envelope of function. It's a bit like the elasticity of a, of a rubber band. Uh, you pull it beyond its elastic limit, it won't go back. And, and so I think, you know, it's just a, it's a generally uh, sensible principle that we use our body in the way that doesn't overload it and, and doesn't underload it. We've got to try and find that Goldilocks zone uh, where it's just right. I want to finish up with, I guess, the big message of this book. Um, there are many lessons to be learned from this book, but one in particular stands out, and that is uh, take control of your pain. What advice do you give to people in order for that to happen? At least one of the studies has found that people who have stronger control beliefs, who actually believe that they can influence their pain, they have less pain. So there's a really hard connection there. I would really emphasise also just the garnering of this knowledge for two reasons. 
Knowledge of central sensitization can be therapeutic in and of itself. It can actually make you better. I think there's an ethical reason as well to have this knowledge. It's material information for anyone seeking treatment for chronic pain, whether it be a talking therapy or a drug or an injection or surgery. If you don't understand in the setting of persistent pain about central sensitization and processes like learned pain, you are not making a properly informed decision about how to treat it. And so I think there's a really an ethical imperative there. And look, the final message would be don't give up hope. What I learned from the people that I interviewed for this book is that some people had pain all of their lives and a knowledge of pain played a significant role and in some cases actually cured that person of their persistent pain. It's not going to be a one-size-fits-all process for everybody, but this knowledge really has to be in, in the mix for someone seeking treatment for, for persistent pain. Paul Beagler, it's been great to talk to you and thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. You're very welcome indeed. I've been talking to Paul Beagler about his new book, Why Does It Still Hurt? How the Power of Knowledge Can Overcome Chronic Pain. It's published by Scribe and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.